This afternoon we confess together the Belgic Confession, Article 30, about control of the church. Let's confess this together. We believe that this true church ought to be ruled and governed according to the spiritual order that God has instructed us with his word, so that there would be pastors and ministers in it who purely preach and administer the sacraments. Likewise, there should be elders and deacons who compose the senate of the church, so that just as by these means true religion can be preserved, true doctrine retained and propagated, and people given over to sin censored and corrected, and also, just as they can be restrained with the same bridle of discipline, so also the poor and afflicted can be assisted with help and comfort according to their particular need. For then all things will be done duly and in good order, when faithful and pious men are elected to its government, according to the prescription of blessed Paul, which is held in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Let's pray. Father, as we have just sung, we um, glorify you and praise you for your righteous rule. We know that the way in which this is worked out in this life on this earth is through your church. So Father, please give us a greater um, wonder and uh, appreciation for your church as you look over it. We confess that it is imperfect on this earth, but one day it will be perfected. And Lord, as always, help us to hear about our sin through the preaching of the law. And likewise, help us to hear the comfort of um, the gospel through the preaching of that gospel in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. The scripture lesson is actually lessons. We'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Then chapter 4, verses 10 through 16. Chapter 5, verses 22 through 32. Of course, that's a lot of page flipping, so I won't mention the scripture, scripture passages, but those are the texts. Brothers and sisters, this then is the word, the holy word of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The following passages are from Ephesians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 20. That he that is the Father in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he will put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers, for the purpose of their perfecting the saints, doing the ministry and edifying the body of Christ, to the extent that all would attain the unity of the faith and knowledge of God's Son, mature humanity, 
and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Word of God so far. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in this third section in our introduction to Reformed faith, discipline. And in our age, the institutional church is called into question, so it goes without saying that a structure or government of the institutional church is also called into question. So typically today in many large churches, we call them mega churches, church structure is welcome, but the difference is it is based on a business model. So typically in these huge churches you have a head pastor, it's like a CEO, and then you have a whole bevy of sub-pastors, pastor of music, pastor of counseling, pastor of the youth, pastor of babies, pastor of this and that, and on it goes, and there's a whole, like, chart, organizational chart of pastors and, and minions and all these people who work under the head CEO. Well, this is not exactly a biblical vision. Order is a biblical vision, but not a business model. The church isn't a model of efficiency. It's a model, rather, that's better explained by pastoral examples. Pastoral as in uh, dealing with farm imageries. A flock is looked over by Jesus, the chief shepherd, and he is pleased to appoint the officers of the church to take care of the sheep. And once we understand that, in ways in which the church is properly nourished and fed by the preaching of the word and sacraments and uh, church discipline, including pastoral care, the better off we are and the better the church is as a whole uh, so, our, uh, as we mentioned last time, uh, when we talked about church discipline, it's not just negative, it is also positive. And the positive dimension includes the shepherding of the people of God, providing spiritual order 
through the church's leadership. So really what we're focusing on today as we talk about the government of the church is order in the church. So in the sermon, first we'll see how there's a need for order because of sin. And second, we'll understand how there is to be order in the church. And third, the results of good order in the church. So first, there needs to be order in the church, we understand, because there is human sin. Sin is messy. Consider the context of Isaiah chapter 9, our Old Testament reading today. Isaiah is writing uh, during the decline of Israel and Judah because of great sin. The kingdom of God in Israel is not stable because of sin, and the people have no perfect king, no ruler who gives them the comfort of order and control. Therefore, Isaiah comforts them with a promise of a future government, a future kingdom that will be on the shoulder of the perfect king. Jesus Christ. He will rule his people through the visible church. And all of us understand that metaphor very well, that Jesus is a king. He is a ruler, a perfect one. So when we really talk about the third mark of the church, we're talking about Jesus as king and head of his church. Getting back to the sin problem, there are many passages in the New Testament that describe the problem of sin. But since we are on the subject of the church, You can notice Paul's description of it in Ephesians 5. The context here is of marriage and mutual submission. Paul teaches that the church needs washing because it is dirty, sinful. Submission and love are difficult in marriage precisely because of sin, and more broadly, submission and love in the congregation is also difficult because of sin. The result is that married people and the congregation are often out of order and things can tip into the direction of chaos. How many churches have you been a part of that are not keen on the marks of the church, especially discipline, and you notice when there's chaos, it creates more chaos and off it goes. That's why there needs to be order. You know, many today assume Christians believe their church is perfect and that those within the church are supposed to be perfect. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. People's lives are messy in and outside the church. Just because somebody walks into the church doesn't mean that they clean up their act. Sometimes it's more crazy because you hear the preaching the law and it incites sin and off you go. The church, in fact, is for people who are sinful and feel that their lives are out of control. For those who come into the church, they find the order of Christ through the marks of the church, the proper preaching of God's word, the proper administration of the sacraments, and proper church discipline. After all, the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments are means of grace. How do you grow in your Christian life? Through the means of grace. The power of the Holy Spirit works through the preaching of the word and through the administration of the sacraments, as you hear and believe, you grow in your faith. And these means of grace are administered to the people of God through the third mark, discipline. Discipline includes, again, the positive benefit of the leaders of the church, making sure preaching and sacraments are administered properly according to the Bible. The leaders perform this function under the king and head of the church, Jesus Christ. 
So anybody who's been in the church for any amount of time understands that the church is imperfect, that it's filled with sinful people, including the pastor, the elders, and the deacon. And so we need order in the church. But how do we get order in the church? That brings us to our second point. Well, it all depends on the church acknowledging that Jesus Christ is king and head of his church. He is the ultimate leader of the church. So we understand Jesus as king of the church when we understand Old Testament offices. And children, when we say offices, we're not talking about the place where your dad or mom works. We go and see their desk and chair and nice office. Maybe it's a small office, a big office. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a position, a position of leadership. And in the Old Testament, there are three chief offices. The office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. These offices were critical to the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, Israel functioning rightly. They didn't do well unless these offices were filled with the right kind of folk. But Jesus Christ fulfills all of these offices. So an interesting study to do is to go back to the Old Testament and see the many ways in which prophets, priests, and kings failed. And we see how they fail. You realize there needs to be a perfect fulfillment of this. And also, when they do their offices rightly, you say, aha, somebody will come along that does even a better job than these folks. So today we say that Jesus fulfills each one of these offices. Jesus is our prophet. We understand that in a practical way through the preaching of the word, a prophetic word. We understand that Jesus is priest when we look at him hanging on the cross. And as Hebrews argues, uh, he himself by his own blood is the chief priest. And he mediates for you right now. That's what we understand as Jesus as priest. And then finally, we understand that Jesus fulfills the office of king. How do we understand that? He rules the church. The pastor doesn't rule the church. The elders don't rule the church. The deacons don't rule the church. Ultimately, Christ rules the church. And according to Ephesians 1, Christ is not only ruler of the universe, but the church in particular. We'll see that he accomplishes this through the offices of elder and minister. So Jesus first is king of the church. He's also described as the head of the body. The church is called the body of Christ according to Ephesians 1.23 and 4.13. Hebrews 5.30 calls believers members of Christ's body. Therefore, the church is Christ's body and Christ is the head. A head of the church, as head of the church, Christ gives the church spiritual gifts. As one person has noted, the spiritual communion of head to body being filled out of Christ as the head, the church is to realize itself as the body of Christ. He built up as his body and it builds itself up. The spiritual upbuilding must bring it to adulthood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And of course, he's, uh, this person here is commenting on Ephesians chapter 4. As Christ pours out his spirit, he gifts the church generally, and in particular, he gives special spiritual gifts to those who would be leaders of the church, but the whole thing works together for the mature adulthood of the congregation. So as Christ is supreme king and head of the church, he gives the entire communion gifts. From this communion, 
officers are elected to represent and lead the people of God. This brings us to the very important issue of power. Power in the church. Again, this is why the business model does not agree with the scriptures. Power is not a business type of power, or political power. Power is actually vested in, in the entire congregation. You all together have a type of power, and with that power, you elect from the congregation itself, deacons, elders, sometimes ministers, but often ministers from outside of that congregation. No guy can lead in this church unless he is called by you. But he also must have what we call external calls, that is, a consistory or a classist must also agree that the guy you called is a good guy, and he's the guy to lead you. So notice that power doesn't come from above, in the sense of, of people from above to other people. It comes ultimately above from Christ, but power is more broad. It isn't hierarchical. So uh, these three offices in the church uh, through which Christ rules is a way in which you understand his love for you. So there are three offices in the church. What are they? Again, not an office in an office building, but positions. There's minister, there's elder, and there's deacon. So if you go to passages uh, such as 1 Timothy chapter 3, you hear Paul talking about bishops. And what he means by bishops here is ministers. Ministers have the calling and the duty to preach the word, to teach the word, to administer sacraments, to teach and catechize the children together with the elders, to pray. And so often you hear people say, Pastor, you have such a great job, you only work one day a week. What a great job. I wish I had that job too. Well, not exactly. If we take Paul's and, and the rest of the scriptures admonitions, you have to pray. And frankly, that, that sometimes, since we're, we're all Americans here, we understand this, doesn't feel like you're always doing a lot when you pray. But you must pray. That is the calling of the minister. How do you help the sheep? Yes, you visit them. You pray with them. But you must also pray for them during the week. You must prepare sermons. Prepare teaching lessons and on it goes. So the minister must stay busy. So look into his office during the week to see if he's doing anything. See if he's praying with his head bowed. Well, that's what ministers do. And by the way, they don't do this alone. They don't run the church. They rule the church as servants with the elders. So the first office is minister. The second office is elder. So if you go to passages, many passages in the Old Testament, you see this very important position described. In particular, Numbers chapter 11, the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, verse 8. Elders also are given the task of praying for the flock. Now their unique role is not one of teaching and preaching or sacraments, but leadership from the people. As you compare the Old and New Testaments, you see that they are to come out from the people to represent them. They are the ones you go to when there are problems. Don't always go to the minister first, you have that option, but go to the, your elder first if you have questions about things in the church. They're the ones who are among the people, who are of the people, who help the people. They pray, they help catechize the kids with the pastor, they serve the people, and they help with church discipline. Then finally, we have the office of deacon. 
This is also described in detail in 1 Timothy chapter 3, later uh, in verses 8 through 13. Deacons also, notice, are to be given to prayer. They must also pray for the people of God. Now, they also come from the people, they're of the people, they represent the people, but in a different way than elders. They are given the task of um, physical uh, help. So, typically, deacons uh, manage the money. So They must be honest, above reproach. They deal with physical needs in the church. So, our church, for instance, has a diaconal fund, which means we have a savings account in which we will help people, if we can, with their physical needs. Also, the deacons uh, handle the process of ministering to people uh, through mercy, so um, helping to organize meals and so, so on and forth, so forth. This is a very important office, just as elders and ministers are. But notice that Christ rules through these offices, not just the person, but the person holding this office or position of leadership. Now, there are three broader assemblies through which Jesus Christ rules. There's the consistory, the classes, and synod, which we'll mention in just a moment. Now, we'll understand here that our church government is a type called Presbyterian. That is, we're not governed by one man, by a pope or a minister, which is called prelacy. A prelate is one who is a, a clergyman. We don't believe that we're run by one guy. We're not governed by all the people in the congregation as a type of democracy that congregationalism is. And to be fair, it's not a complete democracy, but something like that. No, our church is governed by a plurality of elders and ministers who are chosen by the people of that particular church. We don't think anybody can come outside of the church and say, this is your guy without your approval. Therefore, the power of the church is given not just to that one minister, but to the whole, and the whole gives particular ruling power to some men who are elders and ministers. This is the teaching of Ephesians chapter 4. Now, as the children nod off because they feel like they're in government class in school, you must realize, children, that this is very vital. You must be in a church that has broader accountability. Do not go to a church that does not have external accountability. If you're in an independent church, you're in a false church because that church is not accountable to anyone else. There must be broader assemblies. And this is why this is so important. So we believe that there are three biblical assemblies in the church. There is the consistory. There's also the classes. We'll take those together as one. I'm sorry, the consistory and the council. We'll take those together as one. There's the classes and the senate. Now, the council or the senate, senate mentioned in the Belgian Confession was the same as our consistory today. So when they say senate or synod, rather, if they say it depends on the translation. If it's senate or council, they meant consistory in the Belgic. And so the difference is the consistory of the church, the only standing body in the church, is made up of ministers and elders. Ministers and elders form the consistory of the church. That is the standing ruling body in the church. The council is the elders and ministers meeting together with the deacon or deacons. That's not a standing body. That only exists only insofar as it meets together. So the only standing authority we believe 
that scriptural is called the consistory. The elders and rulers, or rather the ministers together. Okay, so that is a type of court, the consistory. That's the first one. The second is called the classis. That is a regional meeting of delegated people from the consistory. So delegated, uh, delegated uh, typically a minister and elder, go to a classis meeting, in our case twice a year, and they do the work of the church. And this is where accountability is so important. In fact, just to be really practical, a month or two ago, uh, church visitors met with the cons- not only the consistory, the council, and said, are you preaching the word rightly? Are you doing uh, sacraments? Let's see your books. Are you playing games with the books? God's uh, money? Are you doing church discipline? Do you fence the table? Many hard questions and a careful examination of our church. External accountability. And that's why we, we uh, mentioned or announced before we, we went to those visitors, do any of you have a beef with the church? With the pastor? With the elders? The deacons? Anything that's going on? If you do, tell the church visitors or we'll tell them. That's a classist sort of activity. So we meet uh, twice a year. We do the work of discipline. We look over the churches. We study together. So on and so forth. That's the second court. It's not standing. It only exists when it meets. That's the classes. The third court is called the synod. S-Y-N-O-D. Synod. And this meets, in our case, at least once every three years. And it is the highest court, not a hierarchical court, but more broadly the highest court, that looks over what the classes and the individual churches are doing as consistories. And so, for instance, if our church had a problem... Let's make it more practical. Say you have a problem with uh, the teaching in that church. You come to the consistory and says, now we don't believe you. Go away. Say, well, we think we're right. You can go to the classes and say, hey, we think this church is out of sorts here. It's out of order. If the classes says, you know what? We don't agree with you. Get out. You go to the synod, the highest court, and say, look, not only our individual church, our classes, there's something wrong. And then the synod rules in that case, and there are examples, recent examples, where people in the church have done that, and the synod says, you know what, you're right, the classes is wrong, and that church is wrong. Shape up. Again, this is why there has to be external accountability. It can't be an independent church, there's no such thing. Well, finally, what are the results of order in the church? Budrick says, then all things will be done duly and in good order, when faithful and pious men are elected to the government according to the prescription of blessed Paul, which is held in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, all things must be done decently and in order. These words should not be confused with the appeal merely to have order. This is part of our beef with the megachurches. They have order, but improper theology, which undergirds their order. No proper order order must reflect that God is in control of his church and directs his church through his ascended Christ. When this happens, God is glorified and his people are truly fed by the word and sacraments. When people are fed and taken care of in this way, Christ is glorified and people are comforted with the gospel. That's his design. You are his sheep. 
whom he loves. This is how he takes care of you. In conclusion, first, there needs to be order in the church because there's sin in the church. Second, order in the church is achieved by Christ through offices of the church. Ministers, elders, and deacons. Third, the result of order in the church is peace and the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.